Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So my major at the University of Massachusetts was hotel, restaurant, and travel. In other words, the broad spectrum of hospitality. The majority by far of domestic dollars is spent on leisure travel as opposed to business. Leisure spending uh, in 2019, that would be pre-pandemic, was about $4.6 billion. Pretty big industry. Today's show and our guest weave together topics related to history, politics, hospitality, entrepreneurship, Jim Crow, cultural tourism, leisure, and the right to swim in the ocean. Why is history, including the retelling and accurate accounting, so important, even when it makes some uncomfortable? Some would say, let the past be the past. Well, my guest today, Dr. Allison Rose Jefferson, upends that weak reasoning. One need look no further than the effort to bring awareness to the case of Bruce's Beach and Manhattan Beach, California. She is a 2021-2022 Getty Conservation Institute scholar in residence based in Los Angeles. Presently, her research and professional interests revolve around the intersection of historical memory, American history, the history of the African-American experience in Southern California during the 20th century, Great Migration, and Jim Crow era. Heritage conservation, spatial justice, and cultural tourism. Dr. Jefferson is also interested in her work's intersections with the experiences of people of African descent in other global settings. Now, I know that's a lot to process, but uh, we'll have Dr. Jefferson unpack some of that for us during our discussion. So along with other work activities, utilizing her knowledge, skills, and expertise, she wrote a great book titled Living the California Dream, African-American Leisure Sites During the Jim Crow Era, which has been optioned by Brad Pitt and Viola Davis's production companies in a joint venture with Amazon to produce a scripted series. The winner of the Los Angeles City Historical Society's Miriam Matthews Ethnic History Award for exceptional contributions to the greater understanding and awareness of Los Angeles history. Her study examines how African-Americans pioneered leisure in America's, quote, frontier of leisure, end quote, through their attempts to create communities and business projects in conjunction with the growing African-American population in Southern California during the nation's Jim Crow era. We're talking the 1900s to the 1960s. And in Dr. Jefferson's words, the awarding of Bruce's Beach, a story we will get into to the descendants, is, quote, an extraordinary example of what reparations could look like in California and across the country in some cases. Dr. Jefferson is also a guest curator on the Radical Leisure Exhibition with the California American African American Museum, we call it CAM in Los Angeles, that will be running until July of 2023. She is an old friend. I welcome Dr. Jefferson to Corner Table Talk. Welcome. And hello there, Brad. Thank you so much for inviting me to come on today to talk about all kinds of things. All kinds of stuff. Well, it's great to have you. Thank you, Dr. Jefferson, for joining me. So we kick things off with a short order question. So I am curious, music 
or no music when you are working? No music. <laughs> quiet. <laughs> yes, quiet. I, I, I focus in on what it is I am doing, whether reading or writing uh, or thinking for that matter. Uh, sometimes uh, working can be uh, walking. And if I'm walking and thinking, I might have music on. But if I'm sitting at my desk, generally, I don't have music on. Who might be on that walking playlist? Oh, I don't even have a playlist right through here. <laughs> It would just be what was on the radio uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, KCRW or right. uh, 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 one of the other public radio stations that has music. I, I'm not focused right through here on on music. There well, was you, a time in life when I about. would have been. <laughs> <laughs> there was a time in life when I would have been more focused on music and we've known one another long enough you know that period of my life, but sure. today, no. <laughs> Other things, yeah. But uh, I love KCRW too, so I'm, I, I could be listening to them as well. So um, tell me your morning beverage. What do you drink first thing? A glass of warm water, generally, sometimes with lemon. Okay, get the, get the yes. system going. And yes. uh, what books might we find on your nightstand? Oh, wow. I have like a collection of books on my nightstand. They're all history books. That would be what I would say. Um, what's something I'm trying to read right now? I'm trying to read right now a book about uh, the colored convention movement that um, Gabrielle Foreman put together. And then I'm also trying to read uh, this book, uh, Afro uh, Nostalgia, uh, which is about art and place and futurism. And then I'm also trying to read a book right now about um, the Hispanic descendant populations in Los Angeles and their relationship to African-American communities in contemporary times. And that's by a couple of professors at the University of Southern California. I have a poetry book by Pam Ward, a new poetry book that just came out that I'm looking at. Um, I'm reading some stories by uh, a guy named Sam Sweet, who writes about Los Angeles and place. And he picks, he has certain addresses uh, that he's picked in the city. For instance, Lester Horton's dance studio was on um, Melrose and it was uh, near, it was between Fairfax and La Brea. And he has a story, a short story that he wrote where he's talking about Carmen de Lavala going to that studio from the east side and about uh, Alvin Ailey. And his, they're short stories, but they're just wonderful from the standpoint of his vision of Los Angeles that he has captured. And he has historical stories as well as contemporary stories. He was talking about this one story, which you, aside from, you know, Melrose yourself, but he was taught, he has this one story where he's talking about this woman that lived in the lava house. Do you remember the lava house? I do. Right there at Clinton and Detroit. 
uh, just uh, south of Melrose. Mm -hmm. He he has a story about her. And I remember her. And the house is not the lava house anymore. They've um, taken off the lava rock. She owned it. She moved to Florida. She's down <laughs> near you. Uh, um, so he has a story about her and the house. And then he even talks about the house after the lava rock was taken off. It's beige now. And it kind of has a streamlined, modern feel to the house. So he has a really um, uh, great sense of place in terms of his descriptions of um, of these areas. Yeah, I, I love that because, you know, you, you spend a lot of time driving around L.A. and going to, you know, in my case, you know, various restaurants, even ones we've had over the years, and you don't know that necessarily the history of what that building was. And, you know, it could have a very interesting story to tell. Uh, so that I would, I would be interested in that. Um, where have you not been Dr. Jefferson that's high on your list to travel to? I would like to go to India and I haven't been there yet, but there's so many other places I would like to go also that are high on my list. It just depends on where I go to first. I'd love to go to Latin America. I've been to Africa, to different places in Africa, and I would love to go back to some other places in Africa. I've never been to China or other parts of the far Asian continent. I'd like to go there. So there's just so many places I would like to go. But India is kind of on the the top part of that list right now. Uh, as, as a history person, who would you say is the, is someone that you most admire historical figure? Wow. That's an interesting question to ask me. <laughs> I, I don't know that I could say that I have any particular historical figure that I admire uh, the most because there's so many that, um, I have been inspired by some of them more well known than others. As a historian of of uh, the African American experience here in Southern California, I've been inspired by many of the people that I've been doing research on and writing about. Uh, and those would be uh, uh, people like um, like Willa Bruce and her husband in Manhattan Beach. It would be people like. Um, uh, uh, in Santa Monica, the Stout family that moved there early in the 20th century and still has descendants that are living there. Mm -hmm. um, it would be people like Fannie Lou Hamer. That's somebody that uh, existed in the, the 20th century in Mississippi who was a, a, a freedom fighter. It would be uh, people like Frederick Douglass in the 19th century. And um, and 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 Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and I mean, there's just uh, so many. Uh, Idano Equidano. Uh, uh, I always mess his name up, but he was the British gentleman in the late 18th century. Equidano, uh, who uh, had been a sailor, uh, uh, had been taken from Africa and uh, brought to the Americas and was a sailor and then wound up in England and got his freedom and wrote his autobiography. I mean, those are all these people that have inspired me through the years. 
Well, when you ask a historian and scholar that kind of question, that's the kind of answer that you get. So thank you very much for that. So let's let's jump in, uh, Dr. Jefferson. How are you doing? How are things? Oh, everything is is good. Just busy uh, and and just trying to plow through all the things that I have to do. <laughs> well, it sounds like your plate is full. Can you describe before we get started here what uh, the exhibit at CAM? Uh, just tell us a little bit about that. And it's running now, I believe, through July of 2023, right? Actually, it starts in December 2022. Okay. The exhibit. And then it runs through July 2023. And that exhibit is, uh, as you said, called Radical um, Leisure. And it is uh, an exhibit that is uh, centered around the topics uh, and stories that I discuss in my book, Living the California Dream, African-American Leisure Sites During the Jim Crow Era. And um, it also will have uh, contemporary art uh, that is uh, somewhat, uh, uh, it, it's not somewhat, it, well, is some, is an outgrowth of the idea of leisure uh, in terms of the African-American experience of, uh, uh, you know, fighting for civil rights in terms of uh, the ability to be able to enjoy uh, all of the offerings that California has to offer and even around the nation and the contestation efforts. Uh, some people uh, don't think of African-Americans as, um, or don't think of leisure as something that was part of the civil rights struggle, but there were social and economic concerns. And then there were these other citizen rights as consumers that were concerns and that was leisure. And so, um, the stories that I talk about in my book are around Bruce's Beach and Santa Monica and Lake Elsinore and the Park Ridge Country Club and uh, Eureka Villa. And um, these places were, um, were, were, were where we were as African-Americans developing, um, uh, developing uh, business projects and and, and communal practices of enjoyment, and we were challenging white supremacy. And just the, na just the idea of African-Americans showing geographic mobility, showing femininity, masculinity, beauty, um, being involved in you know, different kinds of class activities, cultural, um, cultural uh, identities, all of these things are things that I talk about in my book, but they're things that different artists also talk about in their work. And one of them that will be in the exhibit is Derek Adams. And he's a New York-based uh, uh, artist, and he allowed me to use one of his paintings um, as the cover of my book. And then Yurne Brown, who uh, uh, is an artist that's based in Los Angeles right now, he did a piece around... Uh, one of the stories that evolved out of my book about the first African-American surfer. And then uh, David Ataru, who is an African artist who's from Nigeria, he's going to contribute a couple of pieces to the exhibit showcasing the African experience of leisure. 
Um, and, uh, you know, these stories that I talk about in my book have contemporary consequences uh, in, you know, their association with place and, um, and public policy and how people view themselves even today. So it's, a, it's kind of a generational um, intersection in terms of the historical stories as well a, and the contemporary stories. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned my, my major as a uh, hotel, restaurant and travel uh, at UMass and Amherst. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned that because one, you know, I, I can't remember, and I'm sure that there was not any curriculum dealing with the, the leisure aspect of uh, the African-American life through the period that you're talking about. And having spent my entire life in hospitality, some of these things, Allison, Dr. Jefferson, I'm just discovering through your work. So thank you. And I want to come back to that because there's a lot of subject matter that I want to cover with you. But before that, you just mentioned surfing and you know, you, you do, you're doing so much good. I know that you're collaborating with several groups um, on field trip programming to provide underserved youth with new and enriching coastal zone. You call them coastal zone experiences that tie together humanities and heritage and uh, nature conservation intersecting with beach recreation to enhance their personal growth. And it includes surfing lessons. They're part of the youth programming. And, you know, I would imagine getting kids to the beach in some cases for the first time. You know, it reminds me of in New York. I remember when I was going away to school, I, I told a buddy of mine from from the city who I knew, you know, hadn't traveled much and hadn't gotten out of the city much where I was going. I said, yeah, I'm going to Massachusetts. And he asked me, where is that upstate? He had no frame of reference that Massachusetts was its own state. Um, so, you know, some of these things we just take for granted. And I know some of these kids that you're taking to the beach are getting there for the first time. But how do the kids react? Talk talk about that a little bit, if you would. Wow. You know, with the kids that we have been working with, all of them have been just uh, enjoying the experience, um, whether it was their first time or, you know, they've been there uh, before. They love going out to the beach. And I'm surprised sometimes at how much they do know about maybe not history, but they know about many things to do with ocean stewardship that you wouldn't have necessarily have thought that they learned. And then you are happy to know that they did learn it and that you are reinforcing to them, reinforcing to them the, the ideas about being a good citizen and good steward of the environment. Like don't throw stuff in the street because the street will get cleaned either by the street cleaner or the, uh, the rain and all that trash goes into our uh, sewage system, which then eventually winds up in the ocean. Uh, don't throw cigarette butts <laughs> in the street, you know, those kinds of things. And, and it's just been really uh, enriching for me to understand that the kids do get some of this stuff uh, around ocean stewardship. The history, they don't know, but they are happy to learn it. And they're excited to know that um, there were people who, before them, who enjoyed the beach and they are surprised to understand the whole notion of uh, struggle to be able to enjoy the beach because 
for many of them, even if they don't get to the beach often, they still take those kinds of things for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, because in terms of how we live today, for the most part, even though we have some problems in terms of being inhibited from doing things uh, because of more subtle discrimination, it is more subtle. It's not as overt uh, as it was in the past. Right. So um, I recently listened to a, uh, a lecture as part of the LA County Library's uh, book talk series, Heart and Hand, and um, listened to you discussing your book, which was just, it was really fascinating, Dr. Jefferson. I have to tell you, there was just so much in there. It should be a course, um, but it was really enjoyable and just deeply, deeply interesting. So I, I wonder if you would, though, can you can you break down a little bit this description relating to interests and quoting you revolving around the intersection of historical memory, American history, the history of the African-American experience in Southern California, and explain to us a little bit about what you mean by spatial justice. So in terms of these concepts that you just uh, identified here, social and historical memory is what is in the fabric of our world that people talk about. And it is, uh, for instance, uh, in terms of uh, Los Angeles history, that's a more contemporary history that people recognize. We have the experience of having had Tom Bradley as mayor of Los Angeles for um, uh, 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 quite a while up until the early 90s. Many people remember he was mayor. That is something that it's written down, but it's also in our social memory. People can talk about that. They don't have to necessarily go and look on a piece of paper to find it, okay? Mm. Or in a book to find it. When I say a piece of paper, I mean in the, the newspaper or something. And, and then uh, in terms of the stories that I talk about in my book, Many of the stories that I talk about in my book about African-Americans at these uh, various communities around the region, including even in Los Angeles, not just the outer lying communities, people don't, some, they don't realize that African-Americans were there because in terms of whatever uh, local history they've learned about their community, whether it be oral or written down, we were absent from those stories. And so in terms of my work, I am reconstructing all of those stories and reinserting them into the regional narratives as well as the national narrative. And so when we talk about, uh, okay, social space and commemorative space, and spatial justice. And spatial justice. This is part of that. So mm-hmm. it's spatial justice from the standpoint of a intellectual framework. And it's spatial justice in some cases from the standpoint of a physical mm-hmm. framework. Mm-hmm. So that's in terms of intellectual knowledge production. So that could be making sure that um, African-Americans um, um, uh, materials are in libraries. That could be making sure that the African-American experience is 
written down and analyzed in some sort of history that's written about a particular area. It could then also be translated in terms of public space to uh, in social justice to public monuments. And public monuments can mean different things. It could be like Angel's Walk on Central Avenue where there's 15 different stanchions that are up and down the street that tell you about people place uh, people place and events in the African-American uh, life of uh, the community when that area was the hub of, uh, of African-American life during the Jim Crow era in Los Angeles. It could be also in terms of social justice, having the space to use the beach and not be discriminated against, even though you um, have had as an, a citizen, all citizens have had the right to use public beaches in California. Uh, and there's been civil rights laws uh, on the California books since the 1890s that said the beach was open to everybody. Now that's been challenged, but you know that's social justice too, making sure that you know there's this public space recognition that it's open to everyone. It's also from the standpoint of experiences um, of, for instance, surfing, knowing that, you know, you could do that too as an African-American person or as a, a Latin, uh, uh, or as a, a Hispanic person or a person that is of Japanese or Korean or, or, or Chinese descent that, that there is public space and you can do that if that's what you want to do. Yeah, I mean, the, the documenting of, of the things that you are that you are uncovering and making part of um, making them available in the way in which you are, I think is just, just tremendous. I want to read a quote from you describing the book. You say, quote, in my book, I have reconstructed our understanding of the fuller shared collective history, the range of community builders and their impact and contributions to these places in the Southern California region, end quote. You know, there's there's so much to take away from your writing in this book. You know, of course, the horrific stories that we've all heard over the years of of uh, the behavior by whites to prevent blacks from moving up the socioeconomic ladder. Your your book illustrates some of these. But you also, Dr. Jefferson, highlight the foresight, creative thinking and perseverance of a generation of African-American citizens and entrepreneurs that headed north and west. Uh, during the Great Migration and faced head on the realities of the Jim Crow era and fought for the rights for something as seemingly uh, as inalienable as the right to swim in the ocean. Talk about that period and the quote unquote California dream that uh, promoted, quote, a leisure lifestyle as a permanent way of life in a picturesque outdoor setting, a mild climate and new life opportunities. I mean, that's pretty appealing, but not necessarily what African-Americans found in every case. Well, in terms of the California dream, uh, people were moving here, Black folks and others were moving to California uh, during the Jim Crow era, early part of the 20th century, to establish new lives and take advantage of all of the new, all of the opportunities that might be available. It was warmer here than going to Chicago. 
<laughs> or and, for that matter. Or, <laughs> or, or New York. And there were some souls who decided, well, I'm going to take a chance and I'm going to move west instead of moving north. They didn't go to, they, many people that went to the north uh, and to the Midwest they were going on a path that had already kind of been laid out. There were folks there that they could get in touch with to maybe find a place to stay. There were employment opportunities that were more available in terms of the urban setting. There were also factory industrial jobs that were uh, uh, opening up to African-Americans during the early part of the century. Well, when folks were moving to the West, that wasn't necessarily the case in terms of uh, having uh, folks here that could help them when they got here. Also in terms of employment, there weren't like lots of, uh, there wasn't a lot of industry here in the early part of the 20th century. Most of the uh, industrial goods were shipped in from other parts of the country. So people that were coming here to Los Angeles were mostly working in the service industries. And so service industries, what does that mean for African-Americans in the early part of the 20th century? Well, that meant uh, jobs in domestic service. Um, it meant jobs doing maintenance um, of all kinds. Now, that could be maintenance in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, construction. Uh, well, that's another job, but construction is another job people got into. But maintenance could be working at a private home, but it could also be working uh, for the local government um, because that was one thing that African-Americans were able to get on with the local government here earlier in Los Angeles than in some other places around the country. And those were good jobs in terms of you know local uh, county, city and state government. And then, and even a few people got on in terms of federal jobs uh, early in the 20th century. And then there were the professionals who were able to get teaching jobs early in the 20th century. Now there weren't a lot of them, but there were teachers here in the first couple of decades of the 20th century in Los Angeles. And for that matter, there were black teachers that were here in the late 18th century, even in Riverside. And San Bernardino, there were one, and it, there was one in, I think she was in San Bernardino Flake, and so um, so there were more opportunities. Black doctors, uh, people got into real estate here because since there were all these people moving here and there was new housing being developed, there was opportunity uh, in real estate. Uh, and then there were other small businesses that uh, African-Americans began as well in, uh, uh, in the Los Angeles, uh, began and, uh, and, and worked in. Uh, and some of those are the more traditional things that we would think about. And that would be uh, uh, having uh, small restaurants and having uh, hair salons and barbershops and being involved in the construction business and, and having... Um, uh, cleaners businesses. Um, and then there were some floral shops. And then some of the early uh, larger businesses that were formed in California in the 20s included uh, the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company, which was one of the largest African-American businesses in the country 
uh, uh, through the middle decades of the 20th century. And then you had uh, Liberty Savings and Loan, which was founded in the 20s, and it uh, lasted into the 60s. And then you had the aviation industry that um, had African-Americans who were uh, here in the late 20s into the 30s, where they had a, a, a school, a aviation school. People forget that, okay? Uh, one of the early uh, flights of African-Americans going across the country was uh, it started here in Los Angeles and uh, with Banning and uh, his uh, other partner uh, uh, and, and the flight school that they were involved in here lasted to the early, uh, 19, um, uh, early 1940s. And that um, uh, some of those pilots uh, that went to that school wound up being Tuskegee Airmen and working in World War II. Uh, in, uh, uh, you know, for the Air Force. And then some of them wound up getting uh, some of the jobs that the military industrial complex opened up in the 1940s uh, to, uh, you know, the second great migration of African-Americans coming out to, um, uh, 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 coming out of the South. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there was the sense of opportunity um, in, in the early decades. And by 1910, Los Angeles was the largest center of African-American life in the West and the second largest in the state of California. And so, so with that, even though there were these opportunities, there were still challenges. The state had civil rights laws and uh, so, the discrimination wasn't as bad as it was in some other places because it wasn't codified in Jim Crow laws, but there were many informal practices that occurred here that um, uh, uh, inhibited African-Americans from living in certain places with the racially restricted, the racist restrictive covenants. Um, and then just with real estate people saying, we're not gonna sell to you. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, there were at times attempts to keep black people from uh, going to certain businesses in terms of restaurants and things like that. Um, and at one point somebody, they tried to put some signs up and the black people protested all of that and they sued and, and you know, so they, the white folks couldn't put signs in the window saying we don't serve black people, but they could still discriminate against you you, you might not be able to get served. You might go in and sit down and they just ignore right. you. A little more uh, subtle than a, right. a sign would, would, right. would uh, prevent you from. Right. But I, I, want to, um, I want to stay on business, but I want to segue over to hospitality, the hospitality sector or the leisure sector, as uh, you refer to it often. And, you know, when in, in listening to you again, describe this kind of proliferation of black owned businesses during this period. And you touch on several resort uh, establishment, Bruce's Beach, of course, being one of them we're going to talk about in a minute. But you also mentioned the gathering of folks over at Santa Monica Beach, a resort at Lake Elsinore that was featured on the cover of Ebony Magazine in 1948 and touted as the best Negro vacation spot in the state. Uh, where else? Park Ridge Country Club, Eureka Village. I mean, we're, we're talking about several predominantly African-American or, or maybe even exclusively African-American places that were Black-owned. And when you look around today, I mean, are there any? No, 
And part of that is because there was economic sabotage that went on in terms of some of the places. And then the other part of it is that, um, for instance, Lake Elsinore was a wonderful um, place. If you've ever been out there, it's a beautiful valley. But the water in that lake didn't get stabilized until uh, the 1960s. There were, it's always been a place, it was a catch basin for water. And so that lake area, sometimes it was muddy and then sometimes there was water and you could swim. So there were the vagaries of the climate and the environmental conditions, but also then as, as tastes change in terms of what leisure, uh, uh, what people were interested in terms of leisure, and as the civil rights laws around the country opened up the opportunities for African-Americans to go anywhere they wanted to go, these places that were African-American businesses catering to an African-American clientele declined because the Black folks wanted to go to all the places that they couldn't go before. And some of those places were nicer because the white folks who built them had more money to make them nicer. And the white folks didn't support the black folks in their. It didn't go both ways. It didn't go both ways. Mm -hmm. And in many instances, even today, it doesn't go both ways. It doesn't go both ways. (laughs) Okay. Now there's some African-American businesses who have been able to, um, uh, in terms of hospitality business, have been able to uh, uh, bridge that divide, but they're few and far between. Well, I, I speak to that from experience. I, I've been the beneficiary of some of that, uh, we'll call it, um, you know, diverse clientele, but I, I recognize the challenge of seeing it go both ways and also feeling the pain of watching that black dollar not get recirculated. It, it's, it's hurtful, especially to the small businesses, but that, that's another podcast for another time. So let's talk about Bruce's Beach and describe, if you will, the backstory history of Bruce's Beach, how you discovered the story and how the Bruce's were able to purchase that beachfront property, given the opposition in some cases to black folks buying land when they did. So the Bruce's um, had moved here from had moved here from New Mexico and Charles Bruce had been a uh, uh, chef on the railroad and Willa, his wife, was a homemaker as far as we know in terms of the, the census records. Now that doesn't mean she didn't work, but a lot of women in the early part of the 20th century and the late 19th century, their employment wasn't listed. But she would have had lots of opportunities to make money because her husband uh, worked on the trains. And that meant that in terms of the people that were in their circle, they had a lot of folks that were traveling around and getting off of the trains, uh, either because they're changing their shifts uh, uh, and getting to another train or they were travelers. So she could have been renting out rooms in their house. She could have been preparing meals uh, to uh, you know, feed folks. She also could have uh, been doing, um, you know, laundry for folks. Um, so I, I think she probably worked because they own their own house in um, 
uh, as an entrepreneur. They own their own house in New Mexico. And then when they got here to Los Angeles, before they bought their property in Manhattan Beach, they also own their house in Los Angeles. So she looked around based on what we understand um, in terms of, of history and decided that she wanted to open up a beach resort. And she found somebody that would sell her some property in Manhattan Beach. And that's how she got the property on the beach. That was a rural area. I know that, that some people who know Los Angeles today, they don't understand or can't imagine that Manhattan Beach was rural, <laughs> but it was a rural area in 1912. There weren't necessarily great roads connecting downtown Los Angeles, where most uh, African-Americans were living and south of downtown Los Angeles, to the area out in Manhattan Beach. You could take the um, electric streetcar out there. It would get you there in about an hour. Um, but you might not, uh, if you were driving, it would be, it might take you a little longer than that. And you'd be driving over packed dirt roads. And you could have also not had a car. So you, if you didn't take the streetcar and you didn't have a car, you would have been going out there via a horse and wagon or on horseback. And so that's a whole nother dimension in terms of thinking about transportation and where this place was. So Santa Monica had already had an established African-American community there, uh, starting with the founding of the town. And at the early part of the 20th century, there were also black resorts that were de developing in Santa Monica around the same time as uh, uh, Willa Bruce was developing her resort, but it was not right on the oceanfront. Mm -hmm. And and Santa Monica was much more urbanized uh, than Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach was rural. Now, Santa Monica, uh, uh, closer to the beach, was more urbanized. And then as you got inland, it was a little more rural. And between Santa Monica and Los Angeles was rural. <laughs> okay. So so they just got lucky that this realtor, Willard, said, okay, I'll sell you this land. And then they opened up their business. And as soon as they opened the business and started advertising and had people out there, some of the white folks were not happy and they were complaining. And one of the white folks, George Peck, decided to uh, rope off his land in front of theirs on the shoreline. Uh, to keep the folks, black folks, from using the water. And so from day one, there was contestation about, these, about black people using the beach there, even though it became a successful venture and lasted into the 1920s. They still had problems the whole time that they were open. So, Dr. Jefferson, you, you mentioned an article that appeared in the LA Times within a day of the, uh, the Bruce's Resort opening. And this was from Monday, June 27th, 1912, in an article headline, quote, Colored People's Resort Meets with op Opposition, and uh, written after Sunday, full of visitors at Bruce's Beach. And of course, the opposition found a way to make a case in Manhattan Beach that led to an eminent domain claim, which ultimately uh, confiscated the Bruce's property. 
in the name of creating a park there. But the subsequent uh, years that followed, I think a few decades that followed, nothing happened on that property. But walk us through what what transpired and and what's the latest? What what's the uh, the good news that that has come out of all of this? So the property that the Bruce's and several other families owned uh, there between 26 and 27th was eventually uh, uh, taken through eminent domain in 1924. The races won out, <laughs> and and the 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 property was raised and it sat vacant until the late 1950s when a park was finally built. And then it had several different names, this park, and the folks that lost out on the land through eminent domain, some of them moved to other places in um, Manhattan Beach and they held on to those homes. They weren't on the shoreline. They held on to those homes for uh, one of the families held on to their homes after they were moved into the 1950s. And there were a couple of other families that were outside of the 26th through 27th Street um, uh, area, the Strand to Highland, that held on to their property, uh, one family into the 70s, uh, the McCaskill family, and then another family, they still own their land there. And they've developed it into an apartment building. And that was a family that uh, bought their property in 1916. And so you're referring to some of these families were attracted to the Manhattan Beach area because of the Bruce's Beach Resort. And that grew to a little bit of a community of these cottages yes. and properties owned by African-Americans yes. in the area. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the people that got taken out through eminent domain were in a specific area. The few that remained were outside of this 26th to 27th Street Highland to the Strand Mm -hmm. uh, area. And so with that, um, that was the salvo to say, we don't want Black people to live here. And you can see that impact even to today when you have a town of 35,000 people and you have less than half a percent of the town which is uh, African-American. And most of those people who live there now are people who have moved there since the 70s. Unbelievable. How did you find out about this story? So I was in graduate school working on my master's degree at University of Southern California in uh, heritage conservation. Um, And I was looking around for paper topics. And I had always known about Lake Elsinore because my family uh, would go to Lake Elsinore. My grandparents moved here in the 1920s. So they were around with the Bruce's Beach stuff that was going on, but they were getting here when it was, uh, when they were closing them down. And so, so they would go to Lake Elsinore and I had always heard stories about Lake Elsinore. And so then I started learning about these other places. I kind of knew something about Eureka Villa, which is Valverde, but I didn't really know anything about it. And I decided as part of my uh, uh, work that I was doing on my master's degree that I wanted to learn about this history that I didn't know about. And I wanted, in terms of whatever projects that I was doing, I didn't want to just do papers um, to be 
doing research papers to meet the degree requirement. I wanted to do things that were meaningful to me in terms of my learning and also that maybe would be meaningful to uh, uh, my greater African-American community at some point. When I was working on my master's degree between 2003 and 2007, I didn't know I was going to go and get a PhD <laughs> and write a book. I was just trying to you know, figure out where I was going in terms of what I wanted to do for the next phase. And so I discovered more about all of these uh, these places that I had a hint about as I was doing this research in graduate school. And I did um, my, as I said, my, my, I, I did my master's thesis on Lake Elsinore. And the thing about Lake Elsinore is that as a popular place that African-Americans would go in the Inland Empire, some of those people were going to Santa Monica also. They were going to Valverde. They were landowners in Valverde. They were landowners in Venice, California, which um, the Venice early African-American community was an enclave to the Santa Monica um, uh, uh, community. And so there was an interrelationship between all of these places and some of the players uh, who were either enjoying themselves or as business people, uh, 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 you know, came up in this. For example, in terms of uh, Santa Monica and Lake Elsinore, in the 1920s, Charles uh, Darden, a land use lawyer, and Norman O. Houston, who eventually became one of the founders of Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company in the in the twenties, uh, in in twenty two, they were leading an effort to build a black resort where Shutters on the Beach is in Santa Monica. That's at Pico and the Oceanfront, and and Darden was also part of an investment group with Arthur Reese who was one of the founding members of the African-American community in Venice, they were involved in a resort development at Lake Elsinore called Lakeshore Beach. And they had engaged Paul R. Williams, the black architect, and I just found the drawings, mm. uh, to at the Getty. They just got the archives of Paul R. Williams. And I found in there the drawings of the buildings that they commissioned Paul Williams to design for their resort at Lake I would Lake love Elsinore. to see those. I would love to see those. Okay. Paul Williams, the famous architect who would sit across from white clients and draw upside down because they didn't want to sit next to him, but they loved his work. So where we are, fast forward to 2020, the park was renamed uh, Bruce's Beach in 2007. Uh, by the city council. And that city council was led uh, at that time by the one and only black person that has been on the city council and was mayor and that's Mitch Ward. So that was kind of the first salvo to the possibilities that might occur in terms of this land. And so then we had the, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, bringing to the forefront Black grievances in terms of our dignity and our struggle for citizenship in, the 19, in, in 2020. 
And again, in 2020, Bruce's Beach became a topic of discussion in terms of the uh, Manhattan Beach community. And the idea arose with more fervor uh, that the Bruce's should get their land back in terms of the, the, the way in which the narrative went. And the land is owned in part, this land that was taken from the Bruce's and the other families that was made into a park that is now Bruce's Beach. Uh, that land is owned in part by the city of Manhattan Beach and in part by the county. The county of Manhattan Beach owns the land that faces the strand and the oceanfront. The city owns the land that's up the hill uh, there behind the parking lot and the lifeguard training station and a small park. And so Janice Hahn, after hearing the story, and she's a longtime Angelino, she is a second generation uh, uh, public official. Her, her father, uh, Kenneth Hahn, uh, was and her uncle were both public servants uh, in Los Angeles. Um, her her uh, her father was also a county supervisor, and so with that, she had grown up here in Los Angeles, and she never knew about the story of Bruce's Beach. And once she learned about it, she decided that she wanted to do something um, to contribute to the racial justice struggle. And so what she wanted to do is give the land back that she owns that was the actual Bruce's property that was taken through eminent domain. She wants to give it back to the descendants. And so where we are now is that that land at one point had uh, it had been city of Manhattan Beach land. They gave it the oceanfront. They gave it to the state in the 1940s, 1947. And then the state in 1995 gave it to the county. And all of this transition of land ownership had to do with how do we maintain and make the beach safe? Okay, so they, that's how, why all this transfer went on. In 95, the, uh, the county took over supervision of the beaches with the lifeguards, whereas the state had had it before and it was just easier to give it to the state so they could have some, uh, give it to the county so they could have some space to build a lifeguard training center and uh, also to have, uh, you know, some management capacity there at the beach. And so at this point, the legislation was done by the state to allow the county to give this land back because there were some restrictions on it uh, to the family. And where the county is right now is they are investigating, uh, understanding who the descendants are. And once they figure that out and uh, figure out how they, uh, these family members would want to receive this land back, then that transition will happen. It's a complicated uh, situation, um, not just from the standpoint of figuring out who the people are, because we kind of know who those are, those people are. But even if they get the land back, there's all kinds of zoning restrictions what they can on that land, sure. what yeah. they can do. Yeah. Yeah. So the county will be working out some kind of beneficial 
uh, financial relationship mm-hmm. deal with the family members? Well, a couple of things. You know, one, I, ha- I have to thank you because I first heard about the Bruce's Beach um, saga because of you. And uh, while it's a complicated, uh, bureaucratic, um, you know, kind of a hornet's nest, it does potentially lay a precedent for reparations in certain cases, as you specify. It will be interesting to see if that actually uh, starts to play itself, play out um, around the country, around the state um, for that matter. And, you know, it, it just brings to mind, Dr. Jefferson, how many instances like this there were. And of course, we both know the value of generate that generational wealth is is accomplished a lot of times through real estate and property ownership and how many instances there have been where property has been, you know, unfairly taken away and a subsequent generation is left without that that uh, financial footing uh, that 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 uh, real estate would have created. I think that from the neoliberal ideals, it's great that these family members are going to be able to potentially have some wealth generation accumulation. And it's a shame that this property was taken from all of these African-Americans because we don't know what would have happened if those people would have been able to keep that land. As State Senator Stephen Bradford has said, they could have wound up being the Hiltons and having, you know, hotels all over the world if they hadn't been stopped in the 1920s. That community in Manhattan Beach could be a different community in terms of having productive relationships between uh, a variety of citizens in terms of ideas about the development of the area. And so the legacy of the Bruce's Beach situation is not just the loss from uh, uh, of those families. It's the loss in terms of the greater African-American community, because who knows what they might have inspired in terms of other people's ideas about business uh, and and sport and all kinds of things. If Black folks had had the opportunity to continue to live in that community over the last hundred years. And, you know, we find that, I find that to be the case in so many instances. You know, I, I did a podcast a few months back with Alice Randall, a best-selling author, and she had done a, a book that highlighted a cocktail book that was created by an African-American mixologist back in the 30s. I'd never heard of him. And I certainly would have liked to have known throughout my 40 year career that there was someone who had who had done that, you know, and whatever, however, that might have inspired me. I I don't know today, but I'm sure it would have been interesting to know. But to your point, yes, you know, we could have been looking at the the, another Hilton, an African-American family version of the Hilton. So with the time that we have left, I did want to just quickly talk about some of the newer work that you're that you're focused on over in Venice. And um, I've spent some time around the Abbott Kenny area, one time called the hippest street in America. And Abbott Kenny was a developer. And of course, the Oakwood community is adjacent there with some very interesting history. So just touch on any piece of that. What are you looking into? What uh, what has your attention over there? So, you know, people have always said, oh, yeah, there's an African-American. Many people have said there's there's an African-American community in Venice. Okay, but they don't really know what that means. They just know there's some black people there. 
they know maybe if they know anything about two African-Americans who founded uh, the community there and uh, uh, or were founders of the community from two different families, the, uh, the Reese family and the Tabor family. But they don't know anything about the other people that came with them. So Arthur Reese uh, was an early African-American settler in um, in Venice, along with some other folks, the Font family, which wasn't related to him. And they worked in the amusement business with Abbott Kinney, who died in 1920. And he and Abbott and Reese invited his family members to come to California. He was from Louisiana. He had worked on the trains and he came out to Venice. He looked around and he thought, hey, I see an opportunity for me here. And then he invited his five brothers and sisters and his 11 uh, in-laws, <laughs> brothers and sisters, his wife's family. And they all came to California by 1925 to settle in Venice uh, in the beginning. And some of them moved to Los Angeles. So we don't know about these individual stories of these people and what they contributed to making the Venice community. And then they attracted a few other people that were black that lived there. And there was a little enclave that was formed on about three streets in Venice between um, Santa Clara and Westminster and between Fifth and Seventh. And that's where the early African-American community lived. And that, that enclave allowed for the larger community to grow into what people call Oakwood now. And that expanded all the way up to Rose. And those people that moved in there after uh, this early community came during the World War II decade and into the 60s, and they were working in the uh, military industrial complex businesses that were on the west side in the 40s, so the aircraft industry. And where could they live? The only place they could find housing on the west side was in Venice or in some places in Santa Monica in the 40s because the white people wouldn't sell to them. And also, people forget, too, it was still rural around there. South of Washington was farmland. And uh, east of Lincoln was farmland. There was also a historically Japanese community that was there, and they were involved in the truck farming that was there. And so there's some really fascinating individual stories of these people that were some of the early members of the African-American community. And I'm investigating those and also defining a historic district that is based on the social history and not the built environment mm. from the standpoint of fancy buildings or not even fancy buildings, but cottages that have quote unquote integrity that still look good. Most of the property there is been rehabbed over and over again. So you don't have these pristine little cottages, but you have the social history of the people 
that form that community. So then you have this later community, the, the expanded community, they built nine buildings of public housing in around 1970. And those buildings are still standing, 300 units of apartments. People don't realize that black people built that property. It was a group called Project Action. There were some African-American businesses that were on Abbott Kinney also. There was a barbecue joint that just closed in the last 20 years. I remember that place, sure. Yeah. And so, you know, there's been a and then there have been several artists who uh, contributed to the Venice community. They may not have been as big as some of the white artists that were known, but they were there. Well, one of them was fairly big, which is uh, Fred Eversley. He had his studio on, he had a studio on Abbott Kinney forever. He's still alive. He's not, you know, historic, but mm-hmm. <laughs> he's still alive. And then there's another artist in terms of contemporary times who you may know his work. Everybody's seen his work, which is Bill Attaway. He's mm-hmm. done these tall ceramic totems that are there at the boardwalk right by the police station and Windward. And he um, has done, you know, paintings and other things. And then Dominique Hoffman, the actor uh, uh, who was on, um, oh, those shows. Oh, I can't remember the name of the shows, but he's been on television shows. He's still living there. He's lived there for 30 years. And then there was uh, another photographer, uh, Harry Drinkwater, who lived in Venice for 40 years. Some of his work is uh, in the Getty collection. Uh, uh, there, when I say collection, his archives are now at the Getty. Um, and so people forget that black folks were there as beatniks <laughs> uh, uh, and what have you. So I'm investigating the stories of the lives of the people and then thinking about how do we preserve this heritage if we're not going to be able to do it with a zoning historic preservation district right. um, uh, and, and what other public policies can happen to keep gentrification from pushing out uh, a diversity of citizens from the standpoint of ethnic diversity, as well as from the standpoint of economic diversity. It's like you're playing against the clock to some degree, right? As these areas start to, uh, the, the, the area gets smaller and smaller that the, the history that you're talking about represents. And uh, pretty soon, you know, the, the land is extremely valuable. Of course, anywhere in Venice and near Abikini is very expensive property. Um, Dr. Allison Rose Jefferson, I wanna thank you for this phenomenal work that you're doing. And uh, thank you again for my old friend for taking a little time to talk to me at Corner Table Talk, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate in the program today. So sliding into the segment of uh, our little program here called How We Moved with uh, the lovely and dear to my heart, soul, mind, and everything, Ambassador Shabazz, what's up? How did you? You know, I'm good. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, that was just... Um, there's so much to glean from what Dr. Jefferson is doing. I mean, I, I, you know, from memories of like, you know, my parents at that age in the forties, late, you know, late forties, early fifties, well, it would have been early fifties for them when they, when they first met, but, you know, folks looking for some leisure activity, 
where we were welcome. You know, yeah. now my mom was Italian, my dad was African American, and that determined a lot of where they could and could not go as an interracial couple. And to think that there were these leisure places and, and um, facilities, buildings, properties that uh, existed back in that day, it kind of, it warmed my heart. But then now when I, you know, and then to the part of the discussion that we got to where we talked about them no longer being here, you know, and I know they've been replaced by some others, but that was a rich time in our culture and, a, and an important time in our development and self-esteem and feeling good about us. And, and first of all, it, it has seldom chronicled anymore. I mean, I think 20 years ago, I knew about that. We, we knew the families that went to the Poconos or had their family resort or Idlewild, Northern Michigan and grandmother's estate that they expanded. And, and then suddenly it stopped, right? It, the, the interest in joining other people's country clubs being accepted elsewhere, being approved, detoured us from present preserving our history, our culture, what we own, what we learned back then, what we sustained, all of those things, I think it's coming back around. And, you know, you know, usually I have a referral or, or something. I'm still digesting the bounty that Dr. Jefferson imparted. And it makes me want to just go back and listen again and really take some notes and kind of chart her course. I want to know about this, the colored convention movement, um, you know, and the things that she referenced and chronicled um, for me was just all of the black fellowships that took place um, with families just jumped in the car. It's coming back. It's really very interesting. There is a wave. I don't know if it's the restlessness of the past two years in hospitality and the innovation that was born as a result, I'd like your podcast and the people who, who are restless coming to me and wanting to um, curate, not just a getaway, not just a vacation, but something meaningful. There are people talking about where can I put my dollars now? Black folks were, were often um, second guessing where they put money. Now they're ready to build and put down stakes. Um, so how do we make sure that during this potent fertile period that we really are manifesting some kind of sustainable, not just property, not just industry, but culture, history, the griot system, yeah. the storytelling of our culture. You know, I, I think, it, you know, a lot of it to me comes back to real estate. You know, I, I think, it, you know, a lot of it to me comes back to real estate. You know, the heart of the conversation with uh, with Dr. Jefferson, the, the most recent story of hers that uh, really caught everybody's attention is the, uh, the Bruce's Beach. And the idea that a municipality, a city, in this case, Manhattan Beach, is being you know put to the test to award the descendants of the Bruce's this property that was basically that they were run off of. I mean, it was eminent domain, but uh, it was after a lot of hassle and a lot of protest. And, you know, they, from what I understand, they got, they did not get what that property was worth. And then it sat vacant, even though the, the, the case for eminent domain was, was that it was going to become a park. It never became a park. It sat empty. So it was really to just get these black folks off the beach and take their property. And I just kind of, it just brings me back to the importance of land and property ownership. I agree. I mean, but you know, they're, we're learning more and more how many times 
a great grandfather had the deed to a land and absenteeism, we lost it. So we really have to be vigilant and know our value and our worth and that that's the stake that we are entitled to. Um, we're not supposed to lay in wait. We're not supposed to pause for a grant or someone else's approval that we really are the uh, forebearers of land development prior to even arriving here on these shores. Um, in the Caribbean, what's really interesting is whether you have a large house or, or a shanty, the houses are on the lot that your grandfather's grandfather owns. So what do we learn in the United States, not just to be a mortgage holder, but a landowner? Very different. Because a mortgage holder means that you're paying somebody for 30 years. But if you own the land, it's yours. I mean, owning the land. And what does that take? Do you pool resources? Immigrants do it all the time. They make a 10-year plan. They pool their resources. We need to take heed to what early settlers did, what immigrants did, and make sure that if we're going to be amongst the founding culture of this land, that we really are the possessors of property and ownership, and but also being hosts. It doesn't mean take on the same characteristics of those who took it. It means that if once you have it, you have to really share it, teach it, impart it. That's what yeah. I loved about listening to her intensity and her focus and her detail and why I thought, wow, there's no, no, no sidebar I can get right now. I really need to really listen to the sister again, read the books that she explored and chronicled journey some of the sites that she referenced, explore the history that she recounted. Excellent. You know, Ambassador, it, it brings me, uh, it brings up to me, for me as well, the um, delegations that you take um, to say to Belize. I know you go many places, but the one that I've been a part of uh, in Belize and this idea of radical leisure, you know, and what folks are looking for from their time, their downtime. And the experience that I had with you in Belize was just all encompassing. And just talk about that a little bit. I mean, we, we moved around a bit. We got some different cultures. I was with a great group of people. There were ideas exchange, fellowship exchange. Just, just take us through that a little bit and what your mission is there with what you're doing. Well, it's always a great group, group of people. Um, it, and I think that's how we select, engage, refer. It's not just a kind of e-blast. We really want people to come who need to be there, who also, while receiving something, want to give something, while giving something, will indeed receive something in terms of the atmosphere and the downtime. I remember we had a delegation and the, the age range was 25 to 65. And someone said, well, how, how does that work? It's because the definition of who they were was not based on their chronology or their age. It was really based on their spirit, their nature, their heart. So the humor was the same. I would hear guffaws of laughter, volunteers to dive in on an experience, people showing up in other people's rooms, having just met, but within the nine days are part of each other's life to date. So I think it really is for me when I'm identifying a culture that we're gonna visit or people that are gonna share, I don't invite people to all things. It really has to be comfortable for the one traveling or reaching something that I know someone can attain. And so I love curating it, but I also like to know who's on the ground because there's the regular tourist sites that you can get on an, on an, these online web, what do you call it, page engines. And then when you go there and you meet the people who are doing things in their backyard, in their kitchen, and just helping them package it. How are you part of the marketplace in a touristic 
country where the industry of tourism is what is burgeoning and first world travelers benefit, but sometimes it eclipses the citizen. My interest is how to engage the citizen, the visitor, the expat, the tourist, so that there's a cyclical loop of sustainability, social sustainability. Um, you know, in 2019, uh, mid-year, I received a report that the Caribbean had imported uh, almost $2 billion worth of produce. And you want to say, well, why? You have soil, you have sun, you have the seeds, you have people, you have everything you need. But much of the time, it's them trying to catch up with the first world traveler. And you want to say, no, even we want to get it, have it real. We just don't know it's real until you present it. So we have to really retool that language and not forfeit our wealth, I mean, our social wealth, our cultural wealth, our historic wealth, and in this case, agricultural wealth. Um, just by virtue of having it. And then 2020 came and they couldn't have made it back because there's no tourism. Mm. But right there, they have the wealth is there. You drop a seed in any of those locations, it's something's growing. I don't know when the last time was that we mentioned where folks can find any information of any of thing that you have coming up or just to tap into some of these things that you're doing. Uh, is well, there a place that, that folks can go? Yeah, I, I did um, start just so that I can start to communicate with people how we move uh, um, on, on LinkedIn. So you can find me there on LinkedIn. And there's also the Pilgrimage Foundation um, on LinkedIn, but make sure it's me. You know, um, I think when you tab me on Corner Table Talk, it goes to the Pilgrimage Foundation. So that could be helpful too. Okay, how we do great. Because, you know, you, you just have such, not everybody finds the gems in travel. I mean, we're, we're usually somewhere for a limited period of time. And, you know, you really want to kind of get to the thing that you want to get to, right? And and I think, you know, the, the idea of going somewhere and just posting up on a beach, that may be good for a day or two. But if you're in a country and you really want to experience something that stays with you, um, that's more than a selfie, more than a picture that you take, but an actual encounter and a real experience with something indigenous. And I said that that trip for me to Belize just was outstanding for that I'm in that so regard. Glad. I'm glad to hear that, because for me, when I'm inviting people, it's like in, no matter where I'm traveling, my heart is in it. So when I'm inviting people, it's like bringing people to my table or to my home even though we may be discovering new things together. And if I've traveled that area and I'm experiencing it again through the new person, there's a lot of joy, but I also see the joy in the proprietor, the person who's hosting us. Just very exciting for me, that exchange, that humanist exchange that engages culture and also enables us to know that we have a root place other than our zip code. Like we have kinship other places. Um, and what do we do about that? What's our role in that kind of um, home to globe sustainability, that circle, that cycle. Home to globe as opposed to farm to table. I think you just coined something. <laughs> Ambassador Shabazz, how we move. Good to see you, my dear. You too. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.